Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge, where we look at geopolitics in a historical context. I'm Suzanne Rain. I'm joined today not by Ali Ansari, who's having difficulties with his computer, but by Professor Bill Hurst, who is Deputy Director of the Centre for Geopolitics and is Professor of Chinese Development at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much for having me, Suzanne. Well, it's always good to have you talking about China. And today we're going to talk about the consequences of the BRICS summit in Johannesburg, which took place from the 22nd to 24th of August, and which resulted in the expansion of the BRICS to include six new member countries, they being Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which have been invited to join for full membership, and that will take effect from 1st of January 2024. So this has been interpreted in I don't know, say Western media as being essentially a geopolitical act rather than an economic one. But Bill and I thought it would be really interesting to discuss that, to sort of look at whether this is significant and why it might be significant. So I'm going to start, Bill, with asking for your hot take on the expansion of the BRICS and what it signifies. Well, I mean, I think Pink Floyd analogies aside, that basically adding another brick to this isn't really going to build a stronger structure. I think that expanding this club, which already was fairly watered down and amorphous in terms of what it was meant to do, uh, won't make it more able to do anything. If anything, it'll make it less able to actually get anything done. I think what this was meant to be originally was a group of countries sort of cobbled together based on a glib consultant's uh, slogan uh, of what emerging markets might be out there in the world and to see if they could do something that would be less dominated by the United States and to a lesser degree Europe and Japan uh, than the world economy uh, has been over the last 30 years or 40 years and see if they might be able to forge some sort of a club that would de-dollarize some aspects of uh, international trade uh, at, at a more ambitious scale or at a less ambitious scale, at least begin to think about aligning interests within the WTO or in parallel to WTO or other similar structures. Um, I don't think they've really done that particularly successfully since they've been in existence this last uh, number of years. And adding these countries in will actually make it harder to do so. So a country like Argentina, for example, in an area like agriculture, uh, has in many ways diametrically opposed interests and uh, agendas to a country like China um, or India, for that matter, when it comes to how that sector should be regulated internationally. Um, Similarly, a country like Egypt or uh, Saudi Arabia is going to have a very different set of interests uh, when it comes to dealing with the dollarized parts of the international economy, with the US, uh, or with other key Western actors than might say Russia, especially at the current moment. So it's, it's hard for me to see that this expansion would lead to more cooperation uh, rather than less. But I think it is significant in that we're now talking about a very large proportion of the world population and a significant proportion of the world economy that will be encapsulated inside this club. Yes, and you're right. It's I think 
41.5% of the global uh, population and about 26.7% of the world's land surface. So some of the commentary has been focused on the cementing in a way of, of sort of regionalization, local globe, you know, power blocks, which are setting themselves at odds to the one that we've been used to since the end of the Second World War. And who benefits from this is that sort of critical question, really. So when you're looking at it, you think, well, of those six new joiners, they are, as you say, very, very different. And you could well, I asked you this question just before and you gave me an answer. So why, for example, would Ethiopia join and not Kazakhstan or Turkey? Because I think both Kazakhstan and Turkey had applied to join, but didn't. And yet Ethiopia did. And you explained that very clearly. Well, I mean, I think if we, th- if we think about the Kazakhstan example, um, Kazakhstan and in fact, all of the post-Soviet Central Asian republics would be in a very difficult position if they joined this club and they would put both Russia and China into a difficult position in that they have conflicting interests when it comes to trade in the sense that they would in many ways benefit quite a bit from closer trading relationships with China, uh, but they're bound into very close trade and customs relationships with Russia, largely for political reasons. And contestation between China and Russia over how to treat uh, the Central Asian states' uh, trade relations uh, and within those states over how to balance China and Russia would, I think, get in the way of useful cooperation under the framework of a BRICS club. Additionally, a state like Kazakhstan is a key member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which really is a security framework more than an economic one. Uh, and I think that overlapping memberships between the BRICS and the SCO could be problematic in some cases. Oh, there are states that are members now of both. Um, India, for example, as I believe in both clubs, as well as China and Russia. But uh, I believe Russia and India are, should check that before. Yes. No, there's. Um, I can give you the list, Bill, because I was trying to mm. plot BRICS members and aspirant members against SCO membership. And you're absolutely right that mm. there are some who are common to both China and India and Russia, plus Iran is in the process, just an observer at the moment. Mm-hmm. They're the commons. And then you've got Central Asia, so Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, for example, who are all mm. in the SCO, but not in the BRICS. And then you have this really interesting, I think, really interesting right. group of countries who are aspirant members to both of them in different ways. So the dialogue partners mm. of the SCO are Armenia, Azerbaijan, Cambodia, Nepal, Sri Lanka. And then you've got Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, not the UAE, actually. So the UAE is now a member of the BRICS. It's Qatar who mm. is an observer, sorry, a dialogue partner of the SCO. But you are, you are sort of coalescing a a group of countries around these organizations, even if they're not formally a member of them, but they're showing their desire to associate with them, I think. On some level, although again, that can be problematic, just as it would be difficult for some of the Central Asian states to join the BRICS, I think that a country like Turkey, for example, Turkey, remember, is, is a member of NATO. Given the current situation in Ukraine and vis-a-vis Russia in general, 
uh, it seems difficult to accommodate a NATO member state as part of either the BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization without sparking significant problems with Russia. Similarly, Turkey and China do not have aligned interests when it comes to Central Asia or the world in general, and would in fact you know, be at loggerheads over a great number of issues. So if these clubs are meant to accommodate smoothly a number of players, it's hard to see Turkey fitting in. Countries like Cambodia and Nepal are much easier fits in some ways. Cambodia, certainly. Nepal, maybe not, because Nepal is in this difficult position of having to deal with both India and China, but actually managing to do that reasonably productively. Cambodia is very close in its relationship with China and quite distant from its relations with these other BRICS members because it's so far away from them and so small. So in that sense, you know, some of these are easy countries to accommodate, some less so. I think some of the interesting states become countries like Egypt or Ethiopia. Argentina, I suppose, is brought in to the BRICS now largely because of Brazil and an attempt to just reach out to major players across the different parts of the world where existing BRICS members already are. And because of cooperation under frameworks like Mercosur and so on, with, with Brazil already being there, I believe, again, I'd, I'd have to check how close that cooperation is between Argentina and Brazil, but I think there is already uh, some framework under that for economic cooperation there. Egypt and Ethiopia, however, may be less obvious choices. Egypt, I think, because it's an important player in the Middle East, because it's a very large country uh, in the region, it's an important country in Northern Africa, uh, and it's a country that has, over many years, sought to have good relationships with all of these existing members of the BRICS club, as well as with the US and other states. Ethiopia is also an interesting uh, choice, because Ethiopia, of course, is the uh, headquarters of the African Union. Uh, it also is a very important country within African politics more broadly. Uh, but more than that, it is probably the closest partner that China has at the present moment in Africa, at least among larger countries. And so in that sense, it's quite a useful addition politically for China, as well as being a very large country and significant economy in the region. So those are interesting choices. Qatar versus UAE is also interesting. Why the UAE and not Qatar in terms of those countries picked to join? I don't know. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't be able to venture a guess on that, really. Iran and Saudi Arabia, of course, China's just recently brokered a kind of trilateral agreement with those two countries. Iran, I can certainly understand why they would join Saudi Arabia, a little bit less obvious, but perhaps within the framework of that agreement and perhaps with an eye to forging a non-US or European-centered diplomatic framework for uh, engagement across the Middle East. Thanks, Bill. And I'm going to focus a little bit on exactly those Middle Eastern dynamics. And it's a shame we haven't got Ali here, but I have asked mm -hmm. his view on what the Iran thing means. And his views are, this is largely a performance. So Iran's difficulties are internal mm -hmm. and it doesn't, I mean, this is not going to change Iran's economy. This is not going to lead to a huge amount more trade with Iran because it can't do that reliably anyway because of its internal problems. I think that's what he says. He would say it better than I would, I'm sure. And then you've got 
Mohammed bin Zayed of UAE and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. And one of the things that's interesting here is that they are both men with an eye to being seen as great leaders for their countries. And so that shaping of their country's identity and its place in the world is really important to them. And I'm going to make a sort of statement and then ask you to tell me whether it's whether you think it's right or wrong. But particularly since that embarrassing G20 summit where Mohammed bin Salman was sort of ostracized on the side because he was held to have been responsible for the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, he's had a sense that I need to have multiple options. And by joining the BRICS, he's broadening Saudi Arabia's political options or geopolitical options. But then a consideration which I think we do need to explore is the impact of now decades-long use by the US of economic regulation sanctions to essentially punish states for geopolitical acts. And they've watched that happen. They've watched it happen afresh with Russia, but obviously Iran suffered it for years. And I would suggest to you that both Saudi Arabia and the UAE are conscious that their new geopolitical role and their economic strength are, are not, you know, at the moment, if America controls economic regulations because everything is dollarized, then then they have a vulnerability there if they take a geopolitical decision that the US doesn't like in some way. Whereas by joining the BRICS, they're just tying themselves a little bit more closely to the yuan, which has the potential then to create possibilities for the future. And linked to that is this question about particularly Saudi Arabia's relationship with China over the next 30 years, where China's glide path away from carbon fuels is is a very, very gentle one. So they will still be consuming fossil fuels for 30 years. And Mohammed bin Salman knows that. So that's that's my question really, Bill, is to what extent do you think that China's desire to have these two countries in the BRICS and their design to join is intended essentially about the creation of a, a yuan zone or a move towards de-dollarizing particularly some aspects of their economies? I think that's a very interesting angle uh, from which to look at this. I think in the case of Saudi Arabia, it's maybe a bit more straightforward in that, yes, Saudi Arabia is certainly would have to think, uh, any leader of Saudi Arabia would have to think about markets for fossil fuels and also about uh, protecting the capability of uh, Saudi Arabia to continue exporting fossil fuels, but also to continue to influence world markets in key fossil fuels, uh, particularly petroleum, right? That you know, the ability of one state to move global prices the way that Saudi Arabia can and has been able to do for the last 50 years uh, in oil markets uh, is an extraordinary kind of power. And, and it's power that Saudi Arabia has not been shy about using in all kinds of different ways over a very long time. And over-dependence on a particular currency or a particular market or set of markets, especially if that's to the exclusion of others, uh, is problematic. So of course it wants to balance different markets uh, in that way. De-dollarizing or not, I think that's further down the agenda. China loves the idea of de-dollarizing commodity markets and doing trades in RMB and, and all this kind of stuff. But that's, I think, 
not going to really change the global petroleum market that much in the near future, as far as I know. I'm not really an expert on, on commodities markets or or petroleum in particular by any means, but I think that, that that's much further down the road as a goal. In the case of UAE, I think there's actually a different angle that's at least as important, if not more important, which is in fact shipping and the presence of entrepots in the region and elsewhere. So if we go back deep into history, as Center for Geopolitics on this podcast often like to do, if we think about the construction of the British Empire in the 18th and early 19th centuries, it was largely driven by a desire and a strategy to create or control key nodes of focused trade and economic activity in different parts of the world, these kind of entrepot cities or ports. And so we can think of everything from New York to Bombay, Calcutta, uh, Singapore, um, all of these are, are key entrepots. Today, if there's an entrepot anywhere in the Middle East, it's Dubai. Um, Dubai, I would argue, is actually one of five or six cities globally that functions as a regional entrepot to a very important degree in that it has, uh, it, it really is kind of a choke point between internal trade within the region that has very little interface with the global economy and the rest of the global economy. Uh, in a way that say Hong Kong is, uh, Singapore is for Southeast Asia, uh, some other cities and uh, remain so in other parts of the world. And so China's interest uh, in the global economy as a whole is to make sure that it has close relationships with as many entrepots as possible. But it's also in the interest of any state with an entrepot inside of it to try to have good relations with as many key actors in the global economy as possible and with those who are doing commodity shipping and transportation and other things that interface critically in an entrepot as possible. And China obviously is a critical actor in those areas. So if, if I were the government of the UAE, I would certainly be looking to joining the BRICS, not so much uh, with an eye to oil and gas markets as with an eye to protecting and enhancing the status of Dubai as a regional entrepot and as a globally important city within the world economy. And that, that having a, a close working relationship with, as you've pointed out, more than half the world's population uh, and a quarter of the world economy is absolutely critical to doing so. So that's really interesting, Bill. Thank you. And actually, I should just, it's 41.5% of the global population, apparently, although I'm sure all these numbers are not entirely, <laughs> not probably completely precise. But I mean, that's a fantastic explanation. And so I'm now going to move you on to talk about China's economy, but also the tension at the heart of this, which is the relationship between China and the US. And I know you've you've written or you've you've spoken quite a lot in the press this week about the Chinese economy, but it comes on the back of this suggestion that China and Washington are talking about, you know, the extent to which the decoupling has now gone too far. So I noticed in one of your pieces the statistic that two-way trade has plunged nearly 20% for the first half of 2023 compared to the first half of 2022. So that's trade between China and the US. So, so what you are getting is this increasing local regionalization at the expense of globalization. Now, you could argue that's 
actually a result of the pandemic and everyone realizing that globalization has a lot of weaknesses to the system. So, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time, it's clearly concerning both China and, and the US now such that they're talking about it. What's your interpretation of that? Well, I, I think there are longer term trends at work if we're thinking about that particular bilateral relationship or about the state of the economic dimensions of it. So if we look back as far as 2008, the Chinese economy since that time has been really in transition away from a kind of export-led growth model based on uh, manufacturing, particularly export processing manufacturing, towards something different. And the something different has yet to really come into form. But the Chinese government has actually been very consistent about defining that for about the last 15 years or even more as being an economy driven much more heavily by consumption and by specialization in higher value-added sectors, things like green tech and AI, rather than you know lower-end consumer goods, textiles and uh, components, for example. And so that transition has yet to be completed, but that's in motion. And so by definition, that means that there's a declining share of the Chinese economy going into export manufacturing. There's less of the kind of production that will lead to high volume of exports to countries like the United States in the sectors that had been driving that. There's more and more offshoring of production from China to other countries like Cambodia that we were talking about before, but also other states within Southeast Asia, states in East Africa, like Ethiopia, actually, uh, as well as states in, in South Asia, like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Uh, so there has been a strong move, actually, to sort of move out of these lower-end uh, sectors uh, within China. There's also, since at least 2017, been a reaction from the U.S., to trade links with China that has not been so positive, right? The beginning with the trade war, so-called, uh, in that year, and really extending all the way through the CHIPS Act and to the present day, all of this talk about decoupling, de-risking, and so on, uh, and, and reining in trade in exactly those higher value-added sectors that China is trying to prioritize. Uh, so preventing, for example, export or licensing of certain technologies and patents to firms or to uh, processes taking place in China, right? Not allowing uh, either the design software to be used or the uh, hardware for actually manufacture of some of the highest end chips to be used in China, uh, for instance. Other restrictions on imports and exports of goods and services in high technology sectors that are you know, not grabbing as many headlines, but that have also been significant. Uh, some of the things that came in during the Trump administration on mobile phone technology and other things, uh, the, of course, spectacularly the Huawei uh, dust-up that had many angles to it, including issues around Iran sanctions and the detention of uh, Meng Wanzhou in Canada for some period of time uh, when she was under an extradition request to the U.S., had to do with breaking those sanctions. But there's other aspects, of course, of the Huawei 4 and 5G infrastructure that the U.S. didn't want its allies and partners to use in their mobile telephony networks. And most, in fact, of those countries that the U.S. leaned on heavily not to use it decided in the end not to purchase or deploy that technology. 
So there has been this sort of deterioration in the works for a while. If we look at COVID in the very short term at the beginning of the pandemic, it threw the whole trading relationship strongly out of whack, right? It, it, it had huge implications for consumption, both inside China and inside the United States. It made the US much more dependent on imports from China for certain things, like, for example, COVID tests, masks and PPE, and a number of other things that were critical goods uh, imported from China at that time. But it also meant that there was a strong desire to import much less desire to import lots of other things that would often normally be demanded in the market. China also stopped producing a lot of things the way that it had been before. Lots and lots of factories shut down. There was a sort of general decline of industrial production in many, many sectors in China and elsewhere during the height of the pandemic. Later, the recovery boomed in the short term. So part of the reason we see a decline now in two-way trade is because it recovered and spiked so spectacularly a year ago. So early 2022, as opposed to 2020 and 2021. So you see this huge decline and then really rampant spike, uh, not even really that big a decline at the beginning, but with a reorientation of where the trade was, and then a huge spike and now a decline from that spike. So it's not as much of a sharp or immediate decline right now. It's a long-term process or set of processes combined with uh, sort of a, a retreat back towards baseline from this big spike that had been there a year or so ago. Looking more broadly, there is this issue of what is the viability of this relationship in trade terms or, or what is the, the, what are the prospects for the U.S. China trade relationship? I think that the prospects are probably better than is often assumed in a lot of the press coverage and media. Because there's a conflation in those circles often or in the, in the popular discourse of security and economic issues. And I think on security issues, there is a, a significant period or, or a significant dynamic of, of contestation or confrontation uh, between the U.S. and China. And I think, again, that's been going on for quite a while, really since the 1990s. And that's just continued to ramp up and become more intense uh, until today. And, and we're still seeing that. On the economic front, I think until much more recently, there were coalitions in both countries that saw cooperation over trade as being not just important, but essential to advancing their own national interests. And so there has been a retreat from that in both the US and in China to a very significant degree over the last 10 years or so but not to the point of pushing trade into the security space in the sense of having a purely confrontational or a contestation kind of dynamic. There still are important constituencies that depend on trade and cooperation and economic areas between the two countries. One could argue, I think, with some reason that both the US and China depend on trade and economic cooperation with each other in order to grow maybe even in order to maintain baseline, right? If they were to decouple completely, it's hard to imagine that neither of them would suffer any very serious economic consequences, and they both would, and I think everybody pretty much realizes that. So I think there's a strong incentive to salvage that. I think from the Chinese side, that incentive is broader than on the U.S. side, in that China recognizes that it has 
a great deal to gain and everything to lose by a more generalized decoupling from the global economy that it's beginning to feel that it may be experiencing or is fearing that it's experiencing. And so I think China's looking very, very actively to re-engage and to deepen economic engagement, not only with the US, but really across the board with the BRICS, with Europe, with Japan, with ASEAN, and of course, also with the US, very importantly. And I think that these overtures are really of a piece with that. The question to me is how will the US really respond? How much will the US choose to prioritize restarting important trade relationships and cooperative arrangements on trade with China over the security, more confrontational dynamic that's there in the background? And I think that that's much more limited, but not zero. So for example, Biden has not rolled back uh, some of the punitive tariffs and other restrictions that Trump had put in place, even though, you know, the position of his party prior to those tariffs being enacted was very much in opposition to those, right? There was no support for those sorts of tariff uh, regulations or restrictions uh, among Democrats, particularly before that, but he hasn't gotten rid of them and hasn't even mentioned getting rid of them. Mm. And that doesn't seem to be on the agenda anytime soon. Additionally, the CHIPS Act and other restrictions have put new barriers to trade with China in place. So it, it's not obvious that that can all be walked back. And without walking it back, I'm not sure that we could say that the U.S. is really ready to prioritize economics over security in any meaningful way. Thank you, Bill. That was a masterful explanation of the U.S.-China relationship. And I'm very grateful to you for that. I've got one final question, really, because I think then we're going to be out of time, which follows on from that, but is specifically about China's economic difficulties at the moment. And there's a lot of talk about China essentially mirroring Japan's great slump where growth sort of stagnates, got very high youth unemployment and and this sort of paradox where there's very high unemployment, but there's also not enough people to do the jobs because they have the sort of population deficit. You know, how bad do things look for China's economy? Oh, you know, I think there's a risk that that we sit over here and we say, oh, China, lots of indicators looking negative, therefore there's going to be a massive economic problem. But of course, there's another argument which says, actually, it'll be quite resilient. There might be a dip. We're all having a dip. They'll find a way through it. Where do you stand on that question? I, I think there's a temptation to reduce China and its economy or politics to a simple up or down assessment. Uh, and I think that that's been around for a while. So if we look 10 years ago, or even in many quarters, six months or a year ago, most people were saying, oh, China's great. It's the driver of global growth. It's the wave of the future. It's, uh, you know, the, after Brexit, the UK should have free trade with China. You know, all of these kind of uh, ideas that there would be a, a great flowering of the Chinese economy and that it would shower the benefits of growth globally upon the whole economy. And I think that's turned with a remarkable degree of speed and severity towards an assessment that you know, China's about to fall apart economically, that the economy's in free fall, that things are terrible. I don't think either of those assessments is true. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the real picture is far more nuanced and complex and actually multifaceted than either of those. Uh, and that I think the issue now is that there have been structural problems 
in China's economy that many of us have been focused on now for 20 to 25 years in a serious way. And you know, there are many issues that we could talk at great length about, but there is a necessity that the Chinese state has recognized now since the late 90s for a kind of structural rebalancing. And some moves have been made very strongly in that direction, but only partially. So what's kind of set in over the last 15 years or so is what could be called and has been called in other areas of the world a partial reform equilibrium. Right, So they've gone part way in restructuring aspects of the economy, and that then has created vested interests and constituencies that benefit tremendously from that part way reform. But it also creates significant distortions. So things like the asset price bubbles we've seen in equities, but especially in real estate, are examples of those distortions. And there are absolutely vital interests from local governments to property developers to capital investors that benefit tremendously from this and are, are wedded to this boom to the extent that if it were to cease, they could go under financially and will do everything therefore possible to maintain that status quo. But it's a terrible distortion of the economy. Mm. A huge portion of household wealth is invested in real estate. Right? If we look at uh, the overall percentage of wealth in real estate in China, it's well over 60% by most uh, measures. There was a report, I believe, from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 2005 or six that warned in very dire terms that in the United States at that time, 30% of household wealth was in real estate, and that was driving the huge risk of a collapse, which of course then came in 2008. Mm. So the size of the bubble, the severity of the distortion is real. Other aspects like employment and uh, the allocation within the labor force is also a set of major issues, as you just identified. What's interesting there is there's been a shift over time, right? If I go back, you know, my first book was on labor politics in China. And if I go back to then 20 years ago when I was doing that research, the problem I was seeing then is that there were too many people who were being laid off from state-owned enterprises and other kinds of you know, sort of old-line socialist industries who were in what you could call the middle range of the labor market, right? They had something from you know, middle school through secondary school qualifications academically. They had many years of experience in trades and industrial jobs, uh, but they didn't have university degrees. They weren't very highly skilled by the way that the market would define them. They were mostly older in their 40s, uh, for the most part, late 30s through early 50s, but particularly in their 40s. And they were unwilling or unable to accept jobs at the very bottom of the market that actually paid less than subsistence level wages to migrants from the countryside who were flooding into the cities. And so you had this massive concentration of workers in the middle of the market and of jobs at the very high end and very low end. What we're now seeing I would venture to say, and I haven't really done the research on this in anything like a similar way to what I did back then on the opposite pattern, but I think what's happening now is exactly the mirror image of that, where the jobs are more concentrated in the middle of the labor market, right? There's a big demand now for people with what we could call moderate skills and some experience, but we have concentrations of labor market supply at the upper and lower ends. So we still have all of these migrants coming into cities, all of these people with, with very low educational or technical qualifications and, and minimal experience and new entrants into the labor market from that end 
who can't find work or can't find work that they can live off of and make a decent living off of. But then we also see millions of university graduates and engineers who either can't find work at all or end up working in the cafe or um, you know lower end jobs than 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 are than that are not commensurate with their qualifications. And so this massive underemployment and unemployment at the top end of the labor market. So I think just as that cohort of formerly uh, sort of state-owned enterprise laid-off workers versus they're sort of aging out of the labor market and, and into retirement age now, uh, we now see this increasing demand for people in that sort of skill space, but then supply concentrated at the upper and lower extremes. Add to that then two other factors, which is the overall decline of population and the aging of population, which is really extreme. And I could talk, we could do a whole podcast on <laughs> pensions and, and aging yeah. in China, which is also a really important topic over a long time. Mm. But add to that, that fact. And then the second fact that in urban China, high school and university education is becoming much more widespread than it had been even in the very recent past. So we're going to see, I think, a bigger concentration of new entrants to the labor market at the upper end and an overall depression of numbers in the market across the board of workers. So there's going to be increasing rather than decreasing problems, I suspect, with, with the labor market overall in China that will then redound to things like the real estate sector mm. uh, when young people can't find sufficient employment to save money to begin to purchase real estate, for example, which is already a problem, but it'll become a bigger problem as we move down the road, which will make it that much harder to sustain high prices in that sector uh, to which so many people have become accustomed. It's interesting, Bill, isn't it? So many of these things, the, the role of the pandemic in changing economics has been sort of curious. Like there's always a there's a lag and there's an unpredictability about the outcomes. But I think we see what we're seeing in China is a different example, but a, an equivalent example of of all the problems that we've got in Europe and in America, which stem from the 2008 crash, which then stem. You know, there's it's really interesting to see variations of the same kind of problems to do with real estate markets, to do with employment, to do with you know evolution of Technology in the way that it creates new jobs that people don't, you know, people don't know how to make things anymore. And what is it? That we, I think it's it's a fascinating subject actually, and I think we have to be careful not to, as you have said, not to sit here and say well, it's all going wrong in China because what what China I think is demonstrating is one set of consequences of of these factors that are shifting all of us in different ways around the world. I think that's exactly right. What we're seeing happening in China over the last 15 years is not altogether different from what we saw happen in Japan during the 1980s. There is something of an analogy to be drawn there. And I think that analogy is not lost on Chinese planners and leaders and, and economists. In fact, that's been at the forefront of a lot of the concern in policy circles in China for quite some time. The question is just how do you avert that, mm. even when you can see on some level what's coming down the road? Mm. It's the, the great economic problem that everybody always has, which is <laughs> even if you know what's going wrong, the question of making it, fixing it is, is a lot harder to, to address. Mm. Bill, thank you so much for that. I hope our listeners have found that useful. I certainly did. And I, I mean, I just think 
you know, that understanding China, understanding how China is competing geopolitically through new partnerships is a really an interesting one for us to watch. And I think also we need to watch how the West, whatever we call it, how it responds to these competitions. So all those aspirant countries who want to join the BRICS, is there a, is there a model out there which tries to get them to join something else or, or not? I think all of those questions will be really interesting ones to look at as things develop. But for now, Bill, thank you to you. And uh, Ali and I will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Bye-bye from me. Thank you very much for having me.